Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Rethinking Aloud, a podcast from the Diocese of Leicester, encouraging conversation, thinking and reflection among our churches, our fresh expressions and other groups. Uh, and today our conversation is around spirituality. Uh, and I'm joined by Rachel Bennett, prior of the community of the Tree of Life, uh, a living new monastic community made up of young adults uh, living in the city centre, uh, but engaged in ministry across the diocese. Uh, joined also by Chris Webb, Deputy Warden at Lorne Abbey and Spirituality Enabler for the Diocese, and Bob Edge, who among other things, has been pioneering an online Julian prayer group based on the spirituality of Julian of Norwich. Uh, and I've lost count, we probably need to clear this up straight away, I've lost count of the number of people who I've told about Julian of Norwich, and they've been like, wow, he sounds like a great bloke. Just for the record, he was a she. And Julian of Norwich, um, 14th, just into the 15th centuries, was an anchorite, one of the greatest Christian mystics. Uh, but more of that perhaps in a while. Great to have all three of you along for the conversation today. And look, let's start with definitions. We hear the word spirituality banded around everywhere these days, uh, not just in Christian contexts, but all over the place, almost to the extent that it perhaps might seem to mean nothing anymore, because it can almost mean everything. Um, be really interesting just to see how would you guys attempt to define Christian spirituality in just a sentence or two? So I, when I think of spirituality, I, I think in terms of the big picture of what God is doing in the whole of history, uh, seeking to create a community of, of loving people within which he dwells, right in the very centre. You, you see that all the way through the Bible from the Garden of Abraham and his family, the people of Israel, it, uh, all the way through to the city of Jerusalem and coming down and renewed in Revelation at the end. You, it's what Jesus seems to be talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God. Um, but the, the thing is that the only kind of people who can flourish in a, in a loving, God-centred community is loving people, Christ-like people. Um, and we're, we're not. We're just not that kind of people. Um, and, and so God's spirit is constantly at work in every single one of us, seeking to transform and renew us into uh, uh, the likeness of Christ, to make us more Christ-like. Um, and I, I think that Christian spirituality is the business of, of, um, of the way that we structure our lives and the things that we do to make us open to that work of the Holy Spirit um, and to, to, to be as open as possible to that transformation. Yeah, that's great. Um, Rachel, anything anything you'd want to sort of bring in alongside some of that? Yeah, I think I would say um, spirituality is, well, Christian spirituality is the wisdom about how, the how we lead a spiritual life following Jesus. So, you know, our faith has all these different elements, our beliefs, our experience, uh, our expressions of it in music and art and our practices and spirituality in my head is is where all those things come together. It's the integration point. Um, I think sometimes we explore lots of different spiritualities within our our different traditions until we find something that feels like home, and then we say, "Ah, uh, yeah, this I've, I've found my spiritual home, my spirituality, where these things seem to meet." Yep, I'm gonna echo some of that I think I've tried to boil it down um, not particularly successfully perhaps but I thought I'd like to say that in the same way that my mind is informed by my 
physical senses um, that my soul is nourished through my Christian spirituality. And so I thought of Christian spirituality as being like the sunshine, giving me energy and, um, and enlightening me, but also to say that it's there for everybody and it connects us all, um, even if we aren't always aware of that. And so my judgment, behavior, my preferences, my values and attitudes are all influenced by this spirituality in the same way perhaps as my triumphs and tragedies, my life experiences have also shaped me. So really interesting range of, um, of answers there, which kind of work together nicely, but we had something about becoming more Christ-like as a focus. Um, I don't know, perhaps you could almost describe it as practicing the presence of God, something about habits and practices, behaviours, and that kind of metaphor of, of sunshine. So, so lots to be getting on with there. Um, we talk a lot in the diocese here in Leicester diocese about everyday faith. Uh, and we, we sometimes or will often use the word discipleship uh, to describe it. How does, I think perhaps in a way you've began to get this, into some of this stuff, but how does spirituality link in with our everyday faith uh, or discipleship? Because I guess that some people uh, mistakenly might see spirituality as something distinct or something special that's divorced from the everyday. You know, maybe you go on retreat somewhere nice once a year, away from everything, but it's not part of a, mon- of a Monday to Friday living. So how, how, do, how, do, they, how do they belong together? Mm. Well, I really do think they belong together and there's, there's no division or there needn't be or shouldn't be. Um, I really like the fact that we use this expression everyday faith in the diocese to, to describe discipleship because... You know, discipleship is a bit of a churchy word that, that often means different things to different people. But if a disciple is a learner and follower of Jesus, then um, that's not a part-time occupation. That's an everyday thing. It's a full-time thing. So uh, everyday faith, I think, is a great expression. It says but it's on the tin. Um, it's following Jesus every day. And um, so based on my definition of spirituality, it's how you live it and express it every day. Um, I'm not seeing a great division there between those two things at all. But but perhaps um, we're all different, and so spirituality will affect the way it looks and sounds and feels uh, in the way that we express our faith. You know, the very flavour of it will be um, conveyed by the kind of spirituality that we hold that would be my take on it all right so so spirituality is something in a sense much earthier and less esoteric or ethereal than we sometimes attempted to make it um, yeah any, any other thoughts guys it is every day and um i think it would be i don't think it would be possible to separate these things out i um thinking that sometimes I might reflect on my day and look back at where my, um, you know, the I, I didn't take a, a spiritual approach in the way that I might have wished to. Mm. Um, sorry, my computer's <laughs> it's being weird with me. So I do apologize. Um, that, sorry, that spirituality indeed drives our everyday faith, I think. And it, it's, central to the 
central to the substance of the matter really it's um it's there in the things that we have to do it's really vital that we approach things in from the from the correct angle as it were so i think sometimes when i fail to do the things i'm setting out to do it's because i haven't set about set about it in a spiritual way and so i've looked at it as a sort of um the the things i have to do in a a rather more mundane way yeah yeah I, th- I think I would want to say if if uh, if spirituality is not about everyday faith, then what is it about? Uh, you know, it's very tempting, I think, for us to, with a, not just with spirituality, but with a lot of religious stuff, to kind of create a little compartment for it uh, away from our everyday lives. Um, and we can do the same thing with spirituality, that it's all about going away on retreats or getting up early to go and do some some spiritual things somewhere on our own, away from uh, our life, our jobs, our family, and so on. We, we can kind of compartmentalize it away, um, which is wonderful. If the part of your life that you want to see transformed by God's Spirit is the part that has no connection with the rest of the world. Um, but otherwise, it's essentially useless. And, and I think the question, you know, uh, Rachel said something about um, uh, habits and practices, but you know, habits and practices are what? What you want to learn is to is the habits and practices that help you to engage with God and with other people, um, and to do that well, and to do that as a, a deeply uh, loving and God-filled person. Um, well, in order to do that, you need to be doing that in the real world, in your everyday life, when you are around other people, and where God is present, and God is present on lonely mountaintops but god is also present here you know in the office and in the school and, and on the street corner when you're chatting with people you've got to be able to learn to live well there too um i, I you know we're talk, i'm really glad that we talk in the diocese these days about every, everyday faith because the the other kind is the uh, sunday only unusual on my own early in the morning faith which is it's a sideshow really mm-hmm. and the everyday faith is what we want Mm-hmm. So would it be too reductionist to almost say that spirituality, you know, rather grand sounding, but spirituality is basically the business of being a Christian? I'm going to have a crack at that if that's all right. Uh, it, it, I think it is central to the business of being a Christian. There, there are other things, uh, you know, that we uh, that we have a passion about. We, we are concerned about um, ways in which we form community and connect with uh, with the wider society issues of justice and so on. This all overlaps with spirituality, but there are there are things that go on there that are not just about spirituality. We care about doctrine, we care about teaching. I mean, I just want, the problem is if you, it, it, um, I had a, a tutor when I was training for ministry who taught mission, and, and he talked about the way people taught, saying everything is mission. And he said, well, if everything is mission, then nothing is mission, because the world has become meaningless. Um, I, I, I think, you know, you, you I would want to say that the spirituality is important, it is absolutely central, but it's it's not the whole show. There are other things going on that inform how we live a life before God. Something I've heard quite a lot of, or a phrase I've heard frequently these days, but you hear, you hear quite a lot in Christian circles at the moment about the rule of life. Uh, can you explain for someone, you know, what is one of those? Uh, and I suppose the, the, the follow-up question to that, are they worth having? Um, yeah, a rule of life. Some people uh, use these days use the phrase a rhythm of life, which I think is sometimes more helpful. Um, it, it's really a, a a set of practices that you set out to to shape into habitual form uh, in your day to day life. Um, 
often people will write these down. Sometimes a rule of life can just be a handful of spiritual practices written down. I'm, I'm going to engage with uh, daily prayer, occasionally with fasting, with worship with the church and so on. Sometimes it's quite extensive. So the rule of St. Benedict runs to 73 chapters uh, and covers such things as what, what you're going to wear and what time you're going to go to bed and get up and so on. There's, there's a lot of latitude from very simple to very complex. Um, but really, the, uh, the reason I call it a rule of life is because uh, it comes from the, the old uh, Latin word regular for a, a rule. It, it's um, the same sense of the word as the ruler that you find in the bottom of your pencil case when you're going to school. Um, something that helps you to, to draw straight lines when you want to draw them and to measure distances when you want to measure them. In other words, it says it's a way of saying, this is the general direction in which I want to live my life, and it provides me a means of assessing whether I'm getting that right. It's not supposed to be a rule in the sense of uh, the book of rules. You must do these things for God to love you, and if you don't do them, then God will be deeply disappointed. It's not that kind of rule. Um, but if you use them rightly... Uh, as a as a guide and as a means of um, holding yourself accountable for the way you live before God, I think they can be tremendously helpful. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think it's definitely worth developing one. I think it's probably the the journey of of uh, growing a rule of life has been one of the real turning points for me of turning what were a whole pile of good intentions. Um, around spiritual practices and disciplines into into concrete realities. Um, for me, I like the image of a ruler that that helps you to to stay straight and measure well. But I also like the image of a trellis that provides structure and support to enable a plant to grow up. So, um, for us at the community of the Tree of Life, that really that image works so well for us because we're. We're trying to imagine our, our our life of faith, and it's growing, it's rooting, and it's taking shape. And it's we've got this rule that supports us, and that we're all growing up and and through. So that's um that's been a helpful image for me. And so I guess Rachel, you've started or you've implied in your answer that you actually have a rule of life. Um, be interested to ask of the three of you, you know, if you have one and. Um, Perhaps a little bit about what it looks like without too much detail. Yeah, I think it's one of being one of the, the most fun things over the last couple of years, really, developing a rule of life, not just on my own, but with a group of people. And um, that's what shapes the community, really, is this shared sense of practices and values that we are holding and living out together. Um, ours is based on John chapter 15, um, the abiding life, the loving one another life, and the fruitful life. So that gives you a sense of the shape of our rule. It's um, an invitation, um, a set of practices, and then um, some rhythms. And for us, we we have some shared rhythms, which would be things that we connect daily or monthly together. But we have people living in different life circumstances, some with families, um, some alone, some in the house here. And so those rhythms um, have to take account of our, our circumstances. So we have a shared rule and we have um, some personal workings out of that as well. I, um, I, I, I was thinking that I was working towards a, a rule of life, but um, I have to say that a rhythm of life sounds much more attractive. <laughs> um, 
some things I've been um, able to to move ahead with, and um, I've now adapted a routine of um, saying um, morning and evening prayer and um, building in time for meditation. But there's aspects of other parts of my life that are trouble me, and I feel that I need to address. But they're always kind of there or thereabouts. So I think about, um, you know, my carbon footprint. I think about the amount of meat I eat, or um, whether I should fly away on holiday, or how much I use my car. Then I, um, I bother myself about the amount of caffeine that I drink. I think about. Um, how much the, the amount of money that I, I, I put in the collection plate and what I give to charity. And I think broadly about how I can serve the church. The, um, the overarching principle is about, is about doing stuff when it needs doing. And so uh, <laughs> I think that um, this is actually, I'm just realizing that what I've said, all of, all of the above is an exercise in procrastination. Um, but um, there's also words like should and could have um, popped up in there as well. So um, I, I, I will say it's a work in progress, but I also like, I, I'm also attracted to the image of a trellis, and so I shall, uh, I shall use, about, use that and mm. think about that. Yeah, I, yes, I do have a real life. Um, I uh, used to be a part of a Benedictine community, and so we tried as far as possible to... Uh, to, to live a, a somewhat adapted version of, of the Benedictine rule, which is the 73 chapter rule that I mentioned before. Um, uh, that's that's quite full and quite um, prescriptive in many ways. Um, I, I, I've not been part of the community now for a couple of years, and so that gave me the opportunity to reflect on the rule of life that I felt it was that I wanted to live by um, now. Uh, I, I've distilled it down into uh, an eight-line rule of life from 73 chapters to eight lines. Uh, I mean, I can do that because each of the lines of the, the rule could be expanded hugely, but in my own head, I, I know what I mean by it, and so I don't have to write it out for anyone else. Um, so it does mean that now I've, made, I've, I've got it memorized, you know, the, the, the sort of shape of life that I'm aiming for. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's a... It's a tremendously good thing to do, tremendously life-giving to to have uh, that kind of rhythm and structure. It, it's a superb tool to help you live more intentionally, mm. uh, which I think is a good thing. So some Anglicans, I mean, not dissimilar from that, I suppose, but some Anglicans um, will say the daily office uh, as part of their routine. In the evangelical tradition, there's often an emphasis on having a quiet time, uh, basically a bit of Bible and a bit of prayer on your own every day. Um if someone is, as part of their practice, saying the office or having a quiet time, how might they up the ante a bit and make something more of it? I think it's important to um, take the time and think and plan what it is you're going to do and not um, stumble into it. So I would think about how it's, you're going to structure things, what's going to work for you, whether it's um, silence before prayer or prayer before silence, a bit of Lectio. I think it's important to try a few different options and review it and tweak it. It's important also, I think, to take the time to reflect on what it is you've been doing. Perhaps journaling would be an important tool in doing this. 
And I think the place you do it, the time of day that you do it, are all things that need to be considered within that. Yeah. I would, um, personally, I, generally speaking, I have a, some worthy tome that I'm reading that goes alongside with that. And so perhaps that will direct my thinking and some of the, the direction of what I'm uh, praying about. Um, another thing, of course, is that I'm, I'm quite lucky insofar as there's a, a group of people I can go to and um, talk about these things. And I think it, it's important to have uh, partners in this um, activity. Myself, mm. of course, I've um, embraced the whole online thing. And so um, there's a small group of us who um, say the office together um, in the mornings and in the evenings. And I have to say that the um, the fellowship and friendship and the sort of sense of connectedness that I've um, been able to experience doing that, has, um, I really would uh, commend it to everybody. Well, that's really interesting. I'd be, you know, I'm sure Chris and Rachel have something to add in a minute, but really interesting the amount of times we've actually spoken or thought about community in the context of this conversation. And I think some people might be tempted to think of spirituality as that thing you do on your own, you know, giving yourself either a sort of a special treat with you and God or, or some way of disciplining yourself uh, spiritually. But actually, the theme of community, whether it's um, you know, Rachel literally living in community, um, you, Bob, talking about your online community, uh, Chris talking about the way that he was part of a larger Benedictine order. You know, actually, that communal aspect of spirituality has come through quite a lot in, in much of what's been said um, so far. But yeah, yeah, sorry, back to you, Chris and Rachel. Um, upping the ante from just saying the office or having a quiet time, how might people go about that? Yeah, you know, I think I would want to say, when asked the question, how could somebody make a bit more of it? I think the first thing I want to say is, it's actually okay to make a bit less of it. Uh, I mean, first, well, which I mean, firstly, um, the vast majority of Christians that I meet don't say the daily office or have anything that looks much like a quiet time or, or, or anything remotely like that at all. They, they don't pray very much. And the reason they don't pray very much is because nobody's really ever taught them how to do it properly. They've potentially been told them to do it, but not really taught them how to do it. And they don't know where to get started. And when you look at the daily office or the typical uh, model for an, an evangelical uh, quiet time, you're looking at something like 20 to 30 minutes of prayer at a go. And, and that's a huge jump to go from nothing to that. And people can't do it. Mm. Um, and so part of what I end up doing a lot of the time when I'm ha- trying to teach people to, to begin to take the first steps in prayer is to try to do far less. Um, it's not some kind of Olympic competition. You don't get brownie points from God because you did four hours of prayer a day or something. Five minutes a day would be an enormous jump forward for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do a daily office in that time, so just just find something else that's more appropriate. Um, so that'd be my first thing is to say that, and and secondly, then to say for those who do say a daily office and, and a quiet or a quiet time, um, one of the huge temptations that I see people falling into um, is the, the longing for endless variety so that the whole thing remains very sort of exciting and entertaining. Um, of course, with endless variety, you, you never settle into a, a simple, stable rhythm and, and pattern that you can sustain over the long term. You're always trying to inject something new into the picture. Um, even if you look at the 
look at the old 1662 Book of Common Prayer, morning prayer and evening prayer, every single day it was pretty much the same, different psalm, different reading, uh, but the same everything else. And then you'd work your way around the year and you'd come back to the same, you know, back to August, September, October, whatever, and next year and it was the same readings and the same psalms all over again. Um, but that was okay because people found a rhythm of prayer by doing that and they settled into it. Uh, it wasn't always thrilling, but it, it was it was rich food. Mm-hmm. And when we're constantly throwing variety in and trying to make more of it, I think actually we end up making less of it. Uh, the, the prayer becomes less habitual. Mm-hmm. 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 I, think, I think there's a lot in that and the sameness each day because I think having to decide what to do can take up any time that you've got, um, you know, are just having to choose. So, so knowing what you're going to do each day can be a, a real support. Um, I guess the other thing, I, coming back to what you said about community, John, is that I would encourage all of us to talk with others about how we're experiencing our times of prayer. If we're doing a daily office, sharing it with others and then reflecting on that experience together. Um, I often find that we, we, all of us hit blockages. We hit times where we feel we've hit a wall and we're just not, we're not going anywhere or we're not connecting. And, and I think when we, we open that up with other people and say, how is it for you? Is this working? And have I tried this? Have you tried that? Um, we can unblock one another just by sharing the experience. And, and of course, some people choose to do that with a spiritual director. That's, um, can be a really helpful relationship if you you want to explore how you're praying and grow in new ways of praying and exploring your relationship with God. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about that, Rachel, that, um, and I'm not saying this is, is some kind of um, way of trying to induce a sense of guilt in anyone who might be listening or anything, but it's much more just an observation. Um, as Christians, we tend to be pretty rubbish at talking with other Christians about God's stuff, don't we? You know, after a conventional church service in the days when we used to get and meet in decent numbers together and do that, like, you know, the, after, after the service, the tea and coffee and biscuits bit, yeah, you'd hear people talking about football and what they watched on TV and, um, I don't know, the new fitted kitchen they're having put in or whatever, but you never heard that much God chatter at the back of church. And it, it just seems to be one of those weird features about us as Christians that we've got this great thing that we kind of don't talk about much. So, that yeah, that, that was really interesting. I, I just think it's worth mentioning though I, I wouldn't talk about my prayer life in the chit chat after church mm. I think prayer is quite an intimate thing and that we need to create safe spaces where we we can actually open up what's going on in our hearts and mm. that's perhaps why spiritual direction is so helpful but I think we can do it for one another um, one of the things we do in the community is we have these things called listening groups where we listen and do less speaking and we give each person a, a space to say how they are and what God's been um, intimating to them in their life over the last fortnight. Um, and by not speaking so much, by just creating that space, it does feel safe to, to begin to open up and explore the inner life in the presence of other people. Mm-hmm. I think one of the really good things we've seen in in the last, I suppose, couple, two or three decades as well in in uh, in British churches has been the whole house group, home group kind of movement. 
um, that has given a lot of people. I know they're, they're off. You know, so they sometimes work better in some places than others, and they sometimes become a um, you know a bit of a another opportunity for somebody to to hold forth about their views about the Bible and God and so on. But but in most places, they do seem to be they, they give people an environment where they can chat. Uh, informally with people who become friends about God and their relationship with God mm. and how they're doing in their relationship with God, it, it, it fills a real need for many people that was it was very hard to meet before they came along. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, staying with you for a moment, Chris, um, but opening yeah. it to others. Um, you wrote a book a while ago, and I have read it, still on my bookshelves, not being sycophantic, generally, genuinely really enjoyed it. Um, but you wrote a book called Fire of the Word about how we read scripture. Uh, and in reading that book, it seemed to be a book that really raised the expectation levels around what you might expect from scripture uh, as you engage with it. Do you want to say anything about scripture and spirituality? And then if the others want to chip in, that would be great. Yeah, sure. And when I was writing the book, I think one of the big concerns that I had in the back of my head was uh, that so often we treat the Bible as a book about God. Um, it, it, it's a it's a sort of a textbook or a fact book or a, a manual for clergy or whatever, but it's essentially a, a book filled with facts about God. So you learn all about God, and then you go off into. We even talk this way uh, when we're sometimes when we're talking about the Bible. Um, you you you, gain, you sort of analyze it to gain the principles about Christian life and, and theology and so on. And then you go off somewhere else to do application. You apply the things you've learned in your life. Um, so, so, so it becomes a sort of educational resource for Christians. Uh, but the image that I had in my mind when I, when I started putting the book together was of Moses at the burning bush. Um, so if you read in the book of Exodus, chapters 3 and 4, around about there, um, God speaks to Moses, and he gives him a kind of mini-bible. He gives him a, a sort of a history lesson of the Israelites up to that point. He, he gives some laws. He gives some promises. He does a bit of poetry here and there. It's all the little elements that you find in the Bible. He gives him a kind of mini-spoken Bible. Um, but there's this wonderful uh, part towards the beginning where it says that Moses approaches God in the burning bush, and he, he covers his face, and he takes off his shoes uh, and he bows down in worship because he's on holy ground. And he doesn't do that because he says, my goodness, these these laws and poems and things, they're ever so good. They make me want to bow down in worship. He bows in worship because he meets God and comes face to face with God. And the question I wanted to wrestle with in the book is, is it possible to for the for scripture to be a meeting place with God rather than a book about God? Mm-hmm. So therefore, a book that we pray with, not use as... Um, to provide us with information about how to pray somewhere else. Uh, can it be a kind of burning bush for us? And the whole of the Christian tradition of reading the Bible said, yes, that's the primary aim of Scripture. It's not supposed to be kind of God's Encyclopedia Britannica. It is supposed to be a meeting place, and there are plenty of ways of learning to do that. And so that's what I shaped the book around trying to describe that. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to catch up on the point previously made about um about the house groups and actually the um a, a group i have been attending obviously before when we were still allowed to gather together um was going some way to um helping me to engage with um scripture and spirituality 
much more than in uh, in a sort of uh, personally meaningful way, rather than a sort of academic approach that, as you say, that you would then go away and apply. So it's in, it's much more integrated rather than some kind of slightly clunky read this, understand it, act upon mm. it. It's it much more, um, well, yeah, in, integrated, much more holistic. Um, Rachel, any any thoughts from you about scripture and spirituality and the interplay? Yeah, I think I I love. It's Chris's concept here of meeting God in the Word and uh, encountering God. So sitting, I think the idea of lectio um, is the one that I find so helpful. Is when I'm listening in the daily office, um, there'll be just a phrase or, or something that will catch my attention. I think today it was uh, Paul looked intently at the man who was uh, who was crippled and saw that he had enough faith. So I didn't really hear the rest of the reading because I was I was just in that whole thing about thinking about looking intently. Um, and that was was feeding my imagination for, for the rest of the office and, and the prayers. And I suppose I'm carrying that into today with me. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the ways that scripture works in us um, and goes into our day with us. Mm-hmm. So, so for listeners, if they take nothing else from this, scripture as a place of encounter, um, not just a, a source of information, um, that's great. And moving on from scripture, thinking about prayer, um, lots of people struggle with it. Uh, and perhaps sometimes we're supposed to struggle. Um, but what tips would you offer to someone who said, um, and this is the kind of thing that you hear frequently, who said, um, I try and pray every day, uh, but my concentration often wanders, I find it hard. And often, even when I am praying, I'm like, I'm just not feeling it. Um, what might you say to try and help that person? Mm, it's interesting you're hinting at something there, John, when you say it's maybe it's supposed to be a struggle. Um, my take on that would be it's not that God deliberately makes it hard for us to pray, but but my sense is that, that God um, creates this hunger in us um, and this desire for prayer, and that keeps drawing us on deeper so that we were willing perhaps to make it our priority and to to really pay attention and to slow down and get past some of the distractions that that are standing in our way. Um, the image that that really helps me um, in prayer is is um, Mary of Bethany. And, and that image of her sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he says. And um, I try and make this really concrete for myself by having a place that's like my Bethany place. You know, I have a, I have a prayer place that I go to and I have an icon of Jesus. And I, yeah, I light a candle. Uh, everyone here uh, laughs because they think I can't pray without a candle, but it's not true. I can actually pray without a candle, but I, I just find it helpful to have that focus. And I, I get down on my prayer stool, so I'm in a kneeling posture. So those physical things bring me into that posture of being at the feet of Jesus and um, paying attention to him. Um and I think we all are Mary and Martha. So I have a Martha in me. You know, she's always screaming at the door, come on, there's this to think about and that to think about. So um, with this image of, of being there at Jesus' feet, I have to 
tell Martha just to shut up for a bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, just return my attention to to where I want that focus to be. So that one mm-hmm. thing necessary in this moment. Um, and just keep coming back um, however many times it takes um, to be there and be present to him. So that's mm-hmm. my kind of more concrete way of um, taking the time to be present in prayer. So memo to self, be more Mary. Well, acknowledge, acknowledge your Martha as well. You know, I think they both, they're both part of us and they both have, um, they're both important. I've, I think I've been this person um, and it's interesting to reflect back on what Chris was saying earlier and this, I think there's inner drive for me that I, I needed to do more and more. Um, what has been said to me is, you know, it's not, you know, you don't need to be hard on yourself. It's not a competition and, um, it's not a sort of worthiness exercise. Um, I think that I would equate it to being something like practicing, uh, a musical instrument whereby some days I pick up my violin and the neighbors despair (laughs) and I, you know, I, I just feel that like I'm making no progress at all. But then sometimes um, there's a little bit of a jump and you can feel that. And it's, um, it, I feel more in tune. It feels, I feel rewarded by the um, the in effort and the input. I think it's also, forgive my metaphor, further metaphorical flourish, a bit like gardening as well, that we, um, you know, a lot of digging, a lot of backbreaking work takes place for not a lot of results or not a lot of results that are immediately apparent. So I have, I have really wrestled with concentration and, um, one thing that I've I found it helps me just to, to fall back on is to, um, to use the Jesus prayer if I'm absolutely without, um, inspiration. And I use that kind of repetition with the rope. It helps me to focus and I think that that would work with uh, that. Can I find it works for me with uh, a rosary, a, um, Anglican or, or Roman Catholic? Um, I think you know if I was if I was giving tips, which is a bit a strange thing coming from me, but I would you know I think a candle. I think a candle is a great thing. Um, I, th- I find something having the the prayer rope in my hand is, is very helpful. I um I can't get on with a kneeling stool, but I have a a kneeling chair um, because of my uh, because of my great age and my knees, I find that more acceptable. Um, I have collected a bit of an anthology of prayers, which I which I can turn to. I've tried writing a few prayers, and that's been another another way of prayerful expression. But um, echoing. Again, what Rachel said this time is, I think it's, you know, it actually is quite a lot to do with listening as well. And so um, if we are finding that with the words just aren't coming, then maybe that's, maybe we're being told to listen. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you mentioned, I'm just saying, you know, I said the Jesus prayer. Some people might be listening and thinking, oh, what prayer is that? Um, do, you, do you want to just explain that quickly? This is a very short prayer, which um, is thought to have come from the Desert Fathers in the um, 3rd or 4th century. And it's 
um, just a very few words, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the, it, I guess it's a bit like a mantra, the repetition of that I, can, I find is um, soothing and it settles my mind. Um, I often begin with a few minutes of that repetition just to stop my thoughts racing and to um, dis, you know, dispense with any of the distractions that I'm thinking about my working day or um, you know, something I've got to do later on. I do find it, it helps to settle me. Mm. Other people, I, I, in the past, I've, um, I have tried sort of protracted exercises whereby I'll go on for sort of 45 minutes an hour. And um, it is remarkably, uh, remarkably settling. Um, it, and I felt that um, that actually that kind of you know I, I'm not thinking about something I'm not trying to talk to God I'm just it's just happening to me and I, I find that very helpful very useful. Mm-hmm. And Chris, what would you say to the struggling prayer? Yeah, there's two things I would say. The first thing I would say is get hold of the Rethinking Aloud podcast and listen to what Rachel and Bob just said because there was some really good advice in there. Um, so I wouldn't want to repeat that again. That, they just said that really well. Um, a lot of practical advice. And the, the second thing that I would want to say is, you know what, just to encourage you, your rubbish prayer is your best prayer. It really is because when you find prayer easy and it's, you know, wonderful, and the angels are singing around you, and your voice is soaring up into the heavens and everything. It's great. It's wonderful. It's fun. It feels magnificent, and it's really, really easy. Mm-hmm. But when it's a struggle, when it's uphill, and you're concentrating and wandering, and when you're finding it hard, and you're just not feeling it, and you do it anyway, it's really, really worth something. And um, there's that fantastic story of um, uh, in the Old Testament of King David when he wants to buy a piece of land. Uh, from someone, to, uh, I think it's to do with building the temple or, or something of that nature. I forget the detail, but he, he wants to buy this piece of land. And the, the, the guy who owns the land says to him, have it, have it, you have this thing. Uh, you're the king. And David replies to him and says, I will not offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think that when prayer is easy, it's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it costs us nothing. But praying that's hard costs us a lot if we get on and do it anyway, and it, and and therefore it becomes tremendously valuable and meaningful to God. It, it's a, a very concrete way of saying, I'm getting nothing from this at all, and I'm still showing up. Mm. And I love that. that. It encourages me to keep going in the in the really hard times to think somebody's valuing this, <laughs> even if I'm not. Yes. Mm. So can I, can I just sort of build on that a little bit and sort of um, expand it? Because some of the stuff that we've talked about, some of the phrases we've used, we talked about rule of life, daily office um, you sometimes hear people talking about the spiritual disciplines you've just talked about the value of prayer when prayer is struggle um yeah so listen to this might say it all sounds a bit serious and a little bit austere and like a heck of a lot of hard work you know where's the joy in that oh you know for my part i want to say that's that's where you're really going to find the joy in the end i mean some of it is serious and austere we're talking about the business of learning how to live well before God and and life is a serious business but I, I think the question I want to ask is okay now you tell me do you want to have fun or do you want to have joy because they're not the same thing 
And if you want to have fun, if you want to have the kind of spiritual equivalent of a roller coaster, then we can do that. And I think that's what a lot of people are doing when they talk about spirituality. They're doing a kind of narcissistic pleasure-seeking. How can I find deep inner peace and tranquility on mountainsides and, and so on and so on? And, and, and uh, you know, you can do that. You can have kind of spiritual fun. Um, joy is something much deeper and richer and, and more life-giving and more long-lasting, but it's more hard-won as well. You know, I, I cannot play the piano or the cello. Um, you know, Bob was talking about playing his violin earlier on. Um, I can have a lot of fun on a piano. I can do chopsticks, and I can do chopsticks for half an hour and not get bored of it. Nobody else likes it, but I have a lot of fun. Um, but now if you go on YouTube and you search for the, the, uh, the piano guys, one of whom plays a piano, one of whom plays a cello, and you just watch them play for a few minutes, and what you will see on their faces is pure, unadulterated joy because they have worked so hard in such a disciplined way to master those instruments. And because of that... I can play chopsticks, they can play anything, and they can play it really well, and they can just get the deepest joy out of it. And, and I think, you know, what, I want to say this, and what do you want out of your spiritual life? Do you want a kick? You know, do you want a bit of fun? Do you want the, the equivalent of a Red Bull uh, shot in your system and you have a bit of a laugh? Or, or do you want something that will be hard won, but that will just transform your life, and, and you will have that joy welling up from the deepest part of within you? Because you can have one or the other, but but you don't get the joy for nothing. Yeah, I don't think we've got much to add to that, really, Chris. I, I think it, the joy comes from um, the transformation that takes place as we as we go deeper with God, as we work through the stuff, and our character starts to be shaped, and you know that leads us into being freer, being more joyful people, more more loving people, and and who can live life to the full. So, yeah, I think some of the most disciplined people I know are the most joyful people that I the, know. I, I, I'm going to extend the metaphor, sorry, but um, a friend of mine is fond of saying, we, um, we are in a Cayley band together and we play, for, we play music for Morris dancers. And um, we have such a great time when we're out doing Cayleys or performances because of the amount of time we've spent practicing and working at it. And I think this is just what Chris was saying. Really, is that um, and the the joy of doing that because of the the investment you've made. Um, you know, at risk of sounding pompous, it is not about. It, you know, it's quite subtle. It's not about instant gratification. Um, we, you know, when when you you're doing the practice, it doesn't you know it doesn't always feel great. Um, we don't always see the results till mm. further down the road. Mm. So it's interesting. So, yeah, it's theologically, you might say that salvation comes by grace, but sanctification requires a bit of effort um, or, or cooperation with God, which will require. I mean, and I, I'm thinking about, I remember years and years ago now, um, yeah, it's a book I read probably when I first became a Christian, but a guy called Richard Foster wrote a book uh, that was really popular and was popular across a whole range of Christian traditions called Celebration of Discipline. Um, yeah, it is. And I think of the that BCP collect um, where there's that wonderful line about God whose service is perfect freedom. Um, but is a spiritually well-ordered life kind of paradoxically um, a road to freedom and well-being? I think that's what we're all expressing in different ways in this conversation. I remember reading that book the first time 
Um, I think I was in my early 20s. Um, and this dates me now because um, it's quite a long time ago. But um, I think last year the book was had its 40th anniversary. It's really become one of those modern classics. But you know, I remember reading it and it was a game changer for me. Um, I think so much of my Christian life up to that point was trying, trying harder to be good and to do it right and to pray better and to serve better and be um, a good person. And And this book just blew that apart for me. It's not about trying, but you can train. Um, I think I think Foster just has that whole thing about you cooperate with God and he does the transformation. The disciplines are how you how you make yourself available for God to do that. So I've just found that the most helpful thing that's probably one of the most helpful things in my spiritual life. Um, so I'm really grateful for that book. And it's something that um, I know the New Wine Disciples in the diocese here study every year and, and we do at the Tree of Life as well. So it is a path discipline to freedom. And and just to pick up something you were saying a moment ago, John, um, one of the things that uh, Richard Foster has said on a number of occasions is that that Christians run on grace the way that jet planes run on fuel. Um, That that, that you, 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 when you said, I I kind of just all, just kind of um, uh, coiled up a little bit when you said, well, maybe salvation is by grace, but sanctification is, is, is us. And, you know, and, and I think I'd want to say, oh, no, 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 no. Sanctification is the whole of our lives is just a, a, a gift. Uh, existence is, is grace. None of us made ourselves exist. It was a gift from God. Our salvation is a gift from God. The transformation into the likeness of Jesus, it's, it's all a gift of God. Um, but, you know, it, the, the question is how, as Rachel was saying, how are you making yourself available to that? How are you opening yourself up to that? You know, if, if you want to get all the gifts, sit at the bottom of the Christmas tree, right? If you choose to go somewhere else, the gifts are still there, but you're not going to be able to open them, right? And and the, the psalmist says something like that in Psalm 1, where he's describing somebody who's living a very disciplined spiritual life of meditation on the Torah, on the, on the scriptures, and he says that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Well, planting yourself by streams of water doesn't make the water flow. I mean, that's pure gift. But you, you do get to choose whether you're going to drink it or not. And, and, and I think when I'm teaching people about spirituality and prayer, I don't think I'm encouraging them to kind of meet God halfway. Uh, God, God will pour out grace, and, and, but also you do your bit and make yourself better. I'm saying stick your face in the river. Mm, that's helpful. That's helpful. Um, and, and I guess in a lot of ways, you guys in, in the answers that you've said, you, you've given so far, have really kind of exposed the fact that it's, it's, it's nonsense thinking. I mean, I've got a friend um, who I was talking to recently who's kind of like a big doctrine, systematic theology, dogma kind of guy. Uh, and, and, and he said something along the lines of spirituality. It's just prayer stations, scatter cushions, pebbles and candles, really, isn't it? Um, uh, and while there may be that kind of perception uh, held by some that it's kind of prayer with a bit of arty fluffy, fluffiness thrown in, uh, I think the answers that we've heard from all three of you have kind of haven't left space for it to be that, you know. Um, but building on that, how do you make sure that spirituality or your devotional life stays earthed and real 
Well, I think it is integration. I think it's, it's those things holding together. And, you know, if doctrine and and prayer are not held together, then we're going to go badly wrong. Things are going to get disconnected. I mean, I know that I am. I can easily be a very idealistic person who gets a bit dreamy and unconnected. So I, I have to find ways of connecting what I'm reading in Scripture, what I'm believing, and the way I'm living. So I really think spirituality is a very gutsy, earthy, everyday faith, as we keep saying, kind of thing. And um, yeah, it, it it can't be separated from doctrine, and it's certainly not fluffy. <laughs> the spirituality of the African Americans that is a, a spirituality of uh, arising out of oppression and the source the source of um, a fight for justice. So there's nothing fluffy about that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I mean, uh, John, I've heard people say things like that as well. And, and uh, I, I hear clergy saying that kind of thing sometimes because working in a retreat centre, you know, you get that kind of uh, feedback or pushback from people. And it just breaks my heart. You know, I think, you know, I, we, I, we get people who come here and they'll, they'll you know, they'll do cameras and, and and scatter cushions and perils and, and um, sometimes it's a, a way of engaging with something more deeply but sometimes honestly that is pretty much all it is it's a kind of feel-good thing and some you know it, it happens um, I, I, it's not particularly connected with christian spirituality which is far more earthed and and i just it, it, particularly when i hear clergy expressing that kind of view it really breaks my heart because i think well, how how deeply have we failed these people uh, these clergy in their training and formation that they that that's the view of spirituality they're holding and living by and and sharing with other folks in their congregations uh, a complete failure to understand uh, the whole biblical teaching and 2000 years of tradition around christian spirituality it's such a loss you know um but but the question you asked was about how keeping it earthed and real I, there's lots of answers you could give but for me i think the, the most straightforward one do it with other people uh, do spirituality with other people and um, and particularly invite them to uh, provide you with uh, generous but honest feedback in how things are going and, and do the same for them. Uh, if you think that your uh, deep inner life with God is making you into a prayerful, holy, wonderful, kind, generous, uh, Christ-like person, they will soon tell you if it is or if it is not. They will soon call you out if you are uh, being dishonest with yourself about the extent of your spiritual gianthood they will bring you down to earth um and not just christian people as well you know just folks who are around you live live in the world jesus talked about us being uh, in the world or not of the world do it live in the world uh, and you you will get the honest feedback that will help to keep you grounded bob any thoughts on that well it's uh, i understand where the um where your man's coming from i suppose but i would counter the, the fluffy candles with the notion that actually a lot of our spiritual life is spent in freezing cold buildings with leaky roofs and on sat on hard pews and you know often it's about it's about silence maybe for some people it's about fasting you know they're the same trappings that, so we're talking about the same things as when people um get the incense out we look at stained glass and we get vestments on so it's all part of the picture of the the way we 
we, we, we position ourselves perhaps on a Sunday morning and that's how it helps us to helps us to get focused. But, um, you know, as, as for staying grounded, well, staying earthed and real, I just think, you know, why wouldn't it be? And it's reflecting back on what we've been saying throughout, as you mentioned, it, it's central, central to our everyday faith. Um, I stay earthed by... Um, basically being reminded every day by my employers that I have to get on with um, the sort of mundane day-to-day stuff of employment and actually, um, you know, I, I, there's too much danger of me, you know, not, not having enough spirituality in my life and not, not the other way around. So I'm in, I'm in no danger there. And I suppose there is a bit of an artificial distinction because if God really is who we think he is, you know, the creator and the sustainer of the universe and of us, you know, if humanity was his invention, then he's going to, you know, then, then the closer we get intentionally to him, then the more truly human, actually, the more authentic and genuine we may become, even though there may be many who don't recognize that that's the case, that, that actually it's not that the deeper we take ourselves into God, the more distance we'll be from reality, probably the more we'll understand what really is real, if that's not too many reals in one sentence. Um, yeah. um, Chris, do you want to say anything I mean, obviously, from a Lawn Abbey background, yeah, that's where, the way you work at the moment and stuff. Do you want to say anything about the value of intentionally going on retreat? Because we've spoken quite a lot about um, the importance of the everyday, that this is everyday faith. It's not just for special occasions. Um, but there is value in retreat. Um, is there anything you would like to say about that? Yeah, there, is, there, there can be a lot of value in going on retreat. People, people find it valuable for all kinds of reasons. They... Uh, they sometimes it is just the, the, the peacefulness the rest the tranquility they, they just need a break uh, but they don't you know they need a break where they can still reflect uh, where they can pray where they can gain some perspective on life um, sometimes people value the opportunity to come and, and uh, speak to, at a retreat house to the clergy and other folks who, who work here so there are all kinds of reasons why people will come i i, I think over the years um, one of the things that I have learned is that the people who get the most out of retreat are not the people who turn their backs on their everyday lives and walk away from them and try to ignore them and say, I'll come over here in the quiet place and I'll do the God thing and I'll charge my batteries up and then I'll go back out into the hurly-burly and, and, and try to get on with it until the batteries drain out and then I'll come and recharge again. Um, the people who get the most out of it are the ones who come to somewhere like a retreat house in order to step aside briefly from all the, the, the distractions and the busyness and to refocus their attention on God, in, almost to learn the skill again of being attentive to God and listening to God and being in God's presence um, and, and, and kind of wrestling with what's going on in their life in that context, um, but then step back into the, the rest of their, their normal lives not with the kind of charged up batteries now waiting to go flat batteries model, but saying, okay, I've regained that focus. I've I've practiced that skill of being attentive to God. Now the real work begins. Now the real work of retreat. Now I go back into my everyday life and all the distractions come crashing in, but I try to retain that focus where it really matters out here in everyday life. And and I think for those folks, retreat can be enormously valuable. It becomes an opportunity to, to practice a skill that is absolutely essential for everyday living. And, and, and once again, I mean, it's, it's another of those big themes that's come out um, in this conversation, 
But that idea that the spiritual life is actually a fully integrated, non-compartmentalized life. Um, and I'm just thinking back to my early days yeah. as a Christian when you know, retreat wasn't a part of kind of what I grew up into, but um, going to spring harvest ward. And I had that battery recharging model in my head and I'd have done much better approach spring harvest 32 years ago in the way that you're talking about retreat. So, yeah. And Derek, Rachel and Bob, whether you've got anything you wanted to add about the value of of being or going on retreat yes indeed i've um been very lucky insofar as i've had the time and the opportunity to go on retreat quite a few times in the last few years um it's making <laughs> making me smile thinking about john's um com- comment about spring harvest when i was uh, a teenager i used to get to go on the church of scotland summer mission i'm not quite sure it's the same thing but um I have benefited gratefully, I feel, from going on retreat because I'm at a stage in my journey where I think I need the opportunity to, to receive some direction and, and have the space to um, to think and pray. Um, I would make an observation really about um, a, a fairly recent experience that I had insofar as I took myself to the local monastery and I thought, well, I'll just spend um, 48 hours in silence and that'll be fine. And I actually found myself in, um, you know, in in some sort of uh, some sort of level of spiritual anguish, and um, I sort of bricked myself in, and um, I found it quite difficult to get out of. And so I think it's um, it can be beautiful, and it's a wonderful opportunity to recharge your batteries, but also um, not to be approached lightly. Yeah, it's interesting. I thought not to be approached lightly. So yeah, well, I'm gonna. We, 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 kind of really pretty much at the end of, uh, of our time together. I want to finish um, a little bit of a wild card way with the question that the back page interview of the Church Times always ends up with. Um, you can be locked inside a church with one person from church history. You can't say Jesus. That's the answer at Sunday school, but you're not allowed that for this one. One person from church history. I'd love to know who would you choose? I'm sorry, so it's going to be rather boring and predictable, but it's going to be Julian of Norwich. The reason being, I think, is that I've recently um, been required to to read about Julian from other for other purposes. And, um, you know, whilst I've been running this online Julian meeting for quite a while, I was um, embarrassed about how little I knew about, well, I knew a fair bit about her, but I didn't know a lot about her writings. And I find the um, the richness, the depth, and the the, ch- the you know the challenging freshness. I'm sorry, I was I was switching cliche machine off now, but I'm uh, absolutely uh, enthralled at the moment. And so I think that's uh, that's where I'm at. What's where I am just now. So I too, what would be fascinating there that you'd be having the greatest time of your life. Like, wow, I'm locked in a church with Julian of, Nor- of Norwich and she being an anchorite who spent so much of her life in <laughs> isolation. Can we get rid of this? Bro? I can't want to be on my own. <laughs> yeah, no, great answer. Right. Um, well, what about you, Chris? I was tempted to say St. Peter because he had an angel and was pretty nifty at getting out of the locked buildings, which might be helpful. But um, I, I, I think I, I would go with Pendle Morris. Pendle Morris was a 20th century Methodist local preacher and church historian who lived near, uh, just outside London, uh, but he also worked day by day as a, a clerk in the Old Bailey and 
uh, and did a lot of reflecting on this kind of question of everyday faith. How do you relate your faith to your everyday life, his, his Methodist ministry with his, his day work, involvement in the community and so on? Um, not a name that I think most people would be familiar with. I am familiar with him simply because he was my grandfather and he died when I was young. And I know a lot about him and his Christian faith and I didn't know him at all. So I would love, absolutely love to have some time locked in a church and to, to meet him now as an, as an adult and a fellow wow. believer. Mm. Oh, lovely well, you've been listening to Rethinking Aloud in the Diocese of Leicester, and we hope that you'll continue the conversations in your churches, small groups, and fresh expressions of church. But how would you define spirituality? And what has informed and enriched your spiritual journey? Uh, so many things uh, to talk about. But my thanks to today's guests, to Rachel, uh, to Chris and to Bob, uh, and until next episode, please stay safe and be blessed.